Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. No, Chris, we're not. I'm not going to join him. <laughs> I got him all scared because I mentioned it. No, I am not interested to listen in uh, to listen in on Joe Biden getting us into uh, World War Three. Um, <laughs> he's going because he's going to do what he's going to do. You know, it doesn't. I'd almost rather not know. Right? Would you Would you like to know when you're going to die? Yeah. No, I I, I would not. I just so this, so this way, every single time I engage in the life-threatening behavior, I'm thinking like, oh, is this the time? Maybe. And then I live and I'm like, all right, I got to do something else now. Um, <laughs> I'm just, well, all right. Well, along the same lines, um, we've got uh, the Charlotte Mecklenburg police holding a news conference today talking about how a bunch of crime has gone down. Property crime has gone up. Um, I haven't seen all of the stats yet to, to you know, what they're comparing it to, if it's just a year over year or is it a quarter over quarter? Uh, and, and look, the thing about crime stats are that just like all other stats, in the hands of uh, bad actors, you can make crime stats or any stats, right, look a certain way to tell a story you want to tell. You're just going to find the right stats. Uh, what a lot of people believe is that, you know, crime is on the rise, and it is, has been for the last few years. But overall, if you go back, you look back to like the 70s and 80s, and that it peaked in the 90s, it was way worse, way worse per 100,000. Now, it had been going down, 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 down. And when you read the literature, people aren't really sure exactly why. I've seen some explanations like, well, they took all the lead paint out of the uh, government departments. <laughs> and so the, basically the kids weren't growing up around lead paint and eating lead paint chips and getting brain damage. And then they get violent and stuff because they're breathing in the lead paint fumes while they're uh, in their developmental years. And I don't know what it is. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the experts cannot, you know, pinpoint certain things. Now I know that in Charlotte Mecklenburg, they were, they were talking about how the uh, property crime was driven largely by auto thefts. And that was driven largely by the, uh, the quote Kia challenge, which by the way also impacts, I think Hyundai's, um, where there was some problem with I don't know the the start mechanism. I, I have no idea. I have not explored what this uh, what the the technology uh, flaw was that allowed people to easily break into Kias and Hyundai's and steal them, and then it became this viral video thing like, hey, see if you could steal these cars, and then you get all of these youths running around stealing cars, going on joy rides. And by the way, one of the best ways to avoid your car from being stolen is to purchase a stick shift. It's also a little bit cheaper. It used to be. I don't know. Is it still cheaper? It was always like the automatic transmission is more involved. And so you could get the manual and the, the, the not the owner's manual. They used to call it a manual, like a manual drive instead of automatic drive and or transmission. So stick shift. Where you have to, you know, put the clutch in, you got to shift the gears, and 
And like I've had, like I learned to drive on a stick shift. That was my first car. So I know how to drive a stick. And um, that's one of the best ways to prevent your car from being stolen because like nobody knows how to drive a stick anymore because it's only like 10%, less than 10% of all the vehicles sold in America now. It was one of the reasons <laughs> when at the last, uh, well, I'll just say this. At a place, I'll say it this way. At a place I used to work, there was a, there was a company vehicle and it was a pickup truck. And so people would ask to borrow the pickup truck in order to help, you know, if I, they needed to move something. And the person who was in charge of the pickup truck, it was his department's pickup. So in order to limit people's ability to borrow the truck, he bought stick shifts. <laughs> and so most people would never ask him for the truck. Or if they did, he'd say it's a stick shift. And they're like, oh, I can't borrow it. And then I said, oh, I drive stick shift. And he's like, dang it. <laughs> so I got to borrow it. All right. So um, there was a piece of news that came out uh, the other day out of Raleigh that CMPD chief Johnny Jennings, very happy about lauding the governor and state lawmakers for changing how some bonds and other pretrial release conditions will be set for criminal charges. This is House Bill 813. It's called the Pretrial Integrity Act, or the PIA, or the PIA. Um, it got signed into law. Governor Cook, I know. I know. Overroy veto. Uh, yeah, or sorry, Overroy Cooper. He did not veto it. He signed it. So, beginning October 1st, some defendants facing more serious charges are going to have their bonds set by elected judges, not the appointed magistrates who mostly toil out of the public eye. And look, that's true. I don't know any magistrates in Mecklenburg County. Magistrates, I think, are hired by the clerk of court. And so a lot of times, well, and throughout North Carolina history, really, much like uh, most of the systems that the Democrats built under their 150-year reign in this state, it was a patronage gig. So you got the job because you donated money to the Democrat Party, you were able to deliver votes, whatever. You were the child of somebody important in the Democrat Party, whatever. And so these were patronage jobs that were handed out. I'm not saying they all are now. There's, you know, there's been this move over the last uh, couple of decades to professionalize the state workforce and all that. So I'm not making the argument that that is the case now. But the requirements for magistrates, if I'm not mistaken, you don't even need a degree in criminal justice or anything. So um, magistrates are simply there for when somebody gets arrested and they go before or somebody wants to swear out a warrant or something or, you know, file a warrant on somebody like your domestic violence related thing. You show up at the um, at the county courthouse. You see a magistrate and you're like, I want to sign out a warrant on this person, whatever. And then it's like, OK, well, what is you know, what are the facts of the case and this and that? Is there enough to to swear a warrant out? But the thing that that gets most people upset is the the other aspect where somebody gets arrested and the magistrate is there to tell or to set a bond, right? And that is simply to get the person to show up at their first court appearance. That's it. Otherwise, they have to sit in the jail cell. And uh, the argument has been made that making, you know, you get arrested for something, you can't afford to, to bail out, and so you have to sit in, in jail. And for people who are 
uh, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. They can't if they said if they if they sit out of work for a couple of days while they're cooling their heels in the, in in the clink, um, then they lose their job and, and starts this downward spiral. And so the, the, these arguments were made for the bail reform stuff, right? And it unfairly disproportionately impacts uh, uh, lower income people. There's also the racial component they claim, right? And so, well, they. There is a, I mean, there is a racial disparity there in because in the number of crimes that people are charged with, that disparity does exist. There is a racial difference there. Now, people on the left would argue that it's systemic racism, that the reason why people are being charged for these crimes is specifically because it's a white patriarchal system and the whole thing is built in order to incarcerate minorities. Um, all of that aside, you have... The magistrate who was there simply to say, okay, you've been charged with, you know, such an offense and you have a court date in another week. How do I make sure that you come to that court appearance? That's the only, because that's the first time that a sitting judge is going to get a look at your case. And so they set a bond. And what people get mad about is if you have somebody who has a long rap sheet who gets a low bond and is able to get out, right? So they've got a list of priors. Or somebody gets bonded out or bailed out, and then they go and immediately commit another offense, right? A lot of the time, you never hear anything about the people in the, in the bonds because they are serving the, des- the, the designed purpose. They get the people to go to the first appearance, and when they do that, then a judge gets to say, yeah, you know what? I'm revoking your bond. You're going to sit in jail. You got, you're charged with a heinous offense or something like that. That's what the magistrates are there for. You also have the bail bondsmen that then step in, and they will put money to get somebody out. I don't fully understand that whole business model, <laughs> but uh, that's, uh, that's another part of the problem nobody ever talks about. They talk, we're starting to talk about the magistrates now. We've talked about judges, but the bail bondsman component is another part of it. That's another part of it. But now, for some of the most egregious and violent types of uh, uh, offenses, we are now going to um, have a judge set the bail. When somebody gets arrested, they are sent to the county jail where they see a magistrate. No matter the crime, the magistrate sets an initial bond to be released from jail before trial. This is from WSOC-TV reporter Hunter Sayons. Some, including, so again, that's just not, it's not, he says before to be released from jail before trial. It's, that's not precisely accurate. It's just first appearance. The first appearance, because the trial could be a very, very long time in the future, right? The, it's just first appearance, where you go before the judge, you say, do you have a lawyer, right? You understand the charges, like all of that stuff is that first appearance, then you set another court date, and you get the ball rolling. But the judge at that first appearance can then say, wow, you're a despicable you know, person, and you're charged with, well, they won't say that, but they'll say, like, you're, the charge is so bad, um, so violent, you're a flight risk, or whatever, and so then you, we're not going you know, to give you bail, you got to stay in jail. And then you prepare for your trial after that. Or they set a bail that's real, or a bond that's really, really high, you know, and um, and then a bail bondsman can come in, you know, front like 10 percent of that and get you out or something. 
But the bond, uh, the bail bondsmen, like their whole thing is they front the money and then they will bring you back. They will, they're like guaranteeing that they will drag your butt to the court for your court date. Some, including Charlotte-Mecklenburg-Police Chief Johnny Jennings, have argued that the bonds have been too low for some crimes and some criminal suspects have been able to get out quickly. So now, and there have been a couple high-profile examples of this. So now, with this uh, law that was signed uh, by, uh, or the bill that was signed into law by the governor, a judge would decide the conditions for bail, if eligible, for the following charges. So, I guess these aren't going through the magistrate any longer. These are going to judges. First or second degree murder. Attempted murder. First or second degree kidnapping. First or second degree rape. First or second degree sexual offense. First degree statutory rape. Statutory rape of or uh, of or sexual offense against a child by an adult statutory rape of or sexual offense against a person who is 15 years of age or younger human trafficking assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill inflicting serious injury discharging a firearm or barreled weapon into occupied property or any other conveyance while the property or conveyance is occupied first degree robbery first degree arson or robbery with a dangerous weapon. Now, I think this is perfectly fine. Have a judge decide on this stuff, because theoretically the judge is going to be more persuadable, shall we say, uh, because they stand for election versus the magistrates who are hired by the clerk and like their accountability is like through the clerk. And, and that's it. Here, you would have a judge that would be responsible if somebody gets, you know, popped for, um, you know, first degree statutory rape or something. And then the judge lets them out and then they go and, you know, commit another statutory rape. Like, OK, judge, and if you have a history of doing this, because, you know, sometimes you make a bad call, I get it. But if you have a judge with a history of doing this, like Turnham Lose Bruce back in New York in the, what, 70s or 80s, um, it's a classic story. They called him Turn Him Loose Bruce because that's what he did all the time. And then he got mugged. And when he finally came into court after his recuperation, there were all these reporters there. And he says, before we begin today's proceedings, I just want to let everybody know that if you think my what happened to me personally is going to influence the way I uh, the way I perform my my duties as a judge, you know, you got another thing coming. I'm not changing the way I do anything. And someone in the audience yelled, mug him again. <laughs> So I, if you get a judge up there who keeps making these types of rulings or, or setting these low bails and people keep getting out, then the public would have an opportunity to remove that judge. That's the idea. Now, part of me thinks, well, why not just set a higher minimum for all these things and make the magistrates follow them too? But I don't know. These are the questions I ask. All right. So along the lines of the, uh, the, the crime epidemic, right. And, uh, People's perception of crime uh, may not be entirely uh, lining up with the reality of the situation, but when it comes to crime, perception is key because if you perceive crime to be rampant in a particular part of town, say Uptown Charlotte, you will not want to go to Uptown Charlotte. And when you have all of the... uh, you know, the marketing and this, uh, the development and this focus on getting people to come uptown for shopping and entertainment and whatnot, 
then you, uh, you're going to have what we see in San Francisco, which is the doom loop, where people don't want to come because there are perceptions, and I would say in San Francisco especially, rightfully so, there are perceptions of the reality that it is a dangerous place to be. And same thing in New York City is occurring. Uh, the New York Post has a, had a story the other day about this, uh, this stabbing at a CVS store. New York City council members from both sides of the aisle blamed lack of enforcement, quote-unquote, after a CVS worker stabbed to death a serial shoplifter in Manhattan. I think he was going for the Cheerios or something repeatedly. That's No, he was a repeat, repeat, repeat shoplifter, a serial shoplifter. A less so this is a less than subtle dig at Manhattan's liberal district attorney Alvin Bragg. I would I would just clarify for the New York Post it's not he's not a liberal he's a leftist, right? I've been using this difference in terminology for years because there is a difference, and I had not heard Dennis Prager's comments on that until yesterday. I played the audio, and I, I'm like, oh, I've been saying the same thing because leftism is that is a is a different kind of beast. The furor erupted in the hours after Scotty Eno, 46 years old, fatally knifed serial thief Charles Brito, 50, after being punched early Thursday, making it the latest in a disturbing string of self-defense killings in recent months. Okay, so Brito goes in, starts stealing a bunch of stuff again from the CVS. He's confronted and... Brito punches Eno in the face. And Eno stabs Brito. He, uh, sorry, the um, uh, GOP minority leader on the uh, New York City Council, guy by the name of Joe Borelli, said, I'm sorry the man died, but I cannot exist in a world where we pretend that endemic theft without consequence can continue in perpetuity. It's pretty amazing how far New York City has come from Rudy Giuliani's broken window policing practices, right? Growing up, when I and I'm originally from Long Island, I grew up about 50 miles east of the city. Dad worked in the city. So we would go in every now and again. It's not someplace I frequented, especially when I was a very young child, because it was sketchy. It was kind of dangerous. Nobody went there. It was dirty and like Times Square was just, you know, overrun with the prostitutes and the peep shows and such. And then Giuliani gets in and he implements this broken window policing strategy, which is based on this theory that if you see a building with a a bunch of broken windows, it sends a message to the neighborhood around it and the people who are in that area that no one cares and that you can break windows and not suffer any repercussions for that. And what does that then it, it it induces more of a uh, more of a similar behavior, and so if you if you bust people for the broken windows and you fix the broken windows and you try to you know make things look nice so to speak, then you get less of the bad behavior that creates the doom loop. And apparently, the, I guess half the country doesn't believe this is the case. They don't believe this theory works. And I, I know there's disagreement inside the academia. Uh, about whether it works or not, and then the stop and frisk policies and such, you know, cracking down on crime. 
Jazz Shaw at HotAir.com says it is worth pointing out that Charles Brito was not some relatively innocent citizen who happened to be spotted pocketing a pack of cigarettes because he was short on cash that day. The guy had 16 prior arrests, mostly for large-scale looting. In fact, he was awaiting a hearing on previous charges when he attempted the heist that wound not a heist uh, that wound up being his last. But Brito clearly knew that if he stole less than $1,000 in any single robbery, New York's ridiculous bail laws would see him be set free immediately without having to put up bail. And he would be sentenced to no time behind bars if he was convicted. But he was rarely prosecuted with any serious effort to put him away. Right? So again, another example here, the law-abiding and the taxpayers forced to pay the freight for these policies. The business owners forced to pay the freight here. They have to absorb the costs for the policies that leftists implement when they get in power. The Republican minority leader went on to note that the lack of enforcement of fundamental laws was leading to vigilante justice in the city. Bernie Getz, anybody? Bernie Getz, the guy on the subway train in New York City. It's not just the Republicans complaining this time either. The chair of the Public Safety Committee, Councilwoman Camila Hanks, a black female Democrat from Staten Island, was quoted as saying, quote, failure to enforce and mitigate shoplifting as a crime only leads to it becoming a more pervasive problem. Sounds like a white supremacist right there. Um, Another Democratic council member from Queens pointed to his district, saying that the D.A., there has been working with the New York Police Department instead of against them. The DA there has created a list of serial looters, and they've stationed cops outside of retail stores. They'll even block people on the list from even entering the store to begin with. I guess we have to relearn policing strategies over and over and over again. This gets to... This wave of prosecutors that have been installed via elections, but they've been installed backed by leftist money. There is now a movement to retake control of prosecutors' offices. We'll get into that in a minute. Oh, and before I forget, have you got your ticket to the Heritage Life Skills event yet? I'll be there. The annual event is put on by Carolina Readiness Supply, and you can learn all sorts of ways to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables. I'll be there Saturday evening. Check out the schedule at carolinareadiness.com. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness can help you. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? The fan is the fan is running. Okay, I don't know. Um... I just saw a message there. I don't know what it means. Uh, Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com and on Twitter at Pete Callender, where I'm in a running debate still with leftist moonbats who think um, that the selectively edited video of Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson uh, stating the quote from uh, the Hitler and the Moms for Liberty thing, uh, they still think that that's true. It's like Blue Anon. You want to see Blue Anon in action? Go follow me on Twitter. I somehow attract them. Like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the flame to their moonbatty moths. This is from Russ. He says, Pete, sticks used to be cheaper unless 
like a high school girlfriend of mine, you burn out four clutches in a year, so dad decides it's cheaper to get an automatic. Most new cars don't offer manual transmission, and many that do are special order. Interesting. Uh, I got this one also from uh, Cirque de la Sol. says, Pete, I learned to drive a stick in Italy while on vacation. It was great. Uh, I don't speak Italian, so I, I wasn't worried about explaining myself, and I wasn't offended by the helpful driving tips offered by the locals. I was feeling so good, I even talked my way through a toll. <laughs> okay. Um, it is, look, once, it, once you learn how to drive the stick shift, you, you never forget how to drive. It's like, it is like riding a bicycle. You never forget. And there are there are tricks to it and it's just it's just a matter of finding where it engages you know where it catches that's all and once you find on every vehicle and once you find out where it engages then you're good to go that's it and there's a way to kind of is just you just kind of tap the gas a little bit as you lift up on the left foot and you tap 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 and then you can feel where it is and you're like okay boom there it is and now you know and that's it and uh it's still funny because like after all this time i still feel like i need to reach down and like when I'm like when I'm flooring it to drive past somebody, I, I my hand instinctively goes down onto the the gear shift. Although it does, you know, I, I'm not doing anything. It's just, hey. but oh, that's what they do in all the shows too. All the movies, they're always doing that. They're always like, mm, you know, they got they got pedal to the metal, and they always put their hand down as if they're all driving stick shifts, and they're not. Come on, except maybe Fast and Furious when they're not running the guns for Eric Holder. Um, so. The uh, this CVS stabbing story is tied to Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in New York City, the Manhattan D.A., which, by the way, um, there's question now as to whether or not this could be the beginning of the end for him, because he's already had one meeting with the governor of New York, who is a Democrat, Kathy Hochul, where she reportedly cautioned him about his responsibility to enforce the law, which he may not have been aware of that. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he ran for district attorney, not knowing that it was his job, you know, to prosecute people. It's possible. Um, And so now you got Democrats on the city council that are calling him out, too. Clayton Fuller is a former White House fellow and currently serves as D.A. for the Lookout Mountain Judicial Circuit in northwest Georgia. Writing at Fox News... Clayton says, quote, the spate of politically motivated prosecutions against former President Donald Trump in recent months has further underscored how the left has weaponized local district attorney offices to target their political enemies while failing to punish actual criminals. Conservatives desperately need an answer to this alarming trend to restore the rule of law in our country. Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg, who was you know, put into office with the money, uh, with the backing of George Soros. I guess that makes me an anti-Semite now because he, because he put money into these campaigns and I, I mentioned that. And so therefore that makes me an anti-Semite. I think that's the rule, I think. So uh, the DA uh, Bragg, but also Fulton County, Georgia DA Fannie Willis Westchester County, New York, District Attorney Miriam Roach, Fairfax County, Virginia, Steve Descano, George Gascon in Los Angeles, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Kim Fox in Chicago, Chesa Baudin in San Francisco, who got tossed, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, dozens more. 
Far from acting independently of one another, all of these prosecutors are part of a, uh, of a national movement. They have a shared set of policy goals. The elimination of cash bail, a drastic reduction in prison sentences, and a refusal to prosecute entire categories of crimes. And one of the biggest and most public patrons of the movement is, in fact, George Soros. He has poured more than $35 million into DA races throughout the country via this complex network of PACs, dark money groups, nonprofits. And these contests are usually low-dollar affairs compared to the high-profile state and federal races. The money goes a lot further at that local level. And in some cases, the Soros-backed candidates outraise their opponents by like 90%. As of last June, Soros prosecutors represented some 72 million people, or one in five Americans. And the result has been a wave of violent crime sweeping America's cities. Conservatives need a unifying prosecutor movement of their own, one that upholds the rule of law rather than undermines it. Replacing these quote-unquote reform prosecutors with candidates who will actually enforce the law and end the politicization of the justice system is a vital step towards securing our democracy and restoring public trust in the elected leaders charged with keeping our community safe. And look, that means, that means conservatives are going to have to back liberals or moderates. Somebody, like in in Mecklenburg County, a Republican DA is probably not going to win, right? They're probably not going to win. So what you're going to need is somebody to run in the Democrat primary to beat the leftist. That's what is required. So that means a lot of people are probably going to have to, you know, register as unaffiliated and start voting in Democrat primaries. That's that's what I do. I voted in the sheriff's primary, tried to get rid of the sheriff. I was unsuccessful. But that's kind of... That's par for the course for me. (laughs) I don't think I ever vote for people who win races. (laughs) 